Ever heard someone talk about their blood sugar levels? If you are someone who believes that blood sugar numbers, what doctors refer to as blood glucose numbers, are only for people with prediabetes and diabetes, think again. Knowing your blood glucose levels is important to making sure your brain is functioning properly now and in the future. Learn what you need to know for a better brain on this episode. Hi, I'm Dr. Shabnam Daskar. I'm a functional medicine doctor and a certified tiny habits coach. I teach people how to improve their focus, get rid of brain fog, and reduce their risk of dementia down the line. And I'm Andrea Spiros. I'm a professional speaker and tiny habits certified coach. I work with organizations to harness the power of high performance habits so they retain their best employees, have resilient employees, and have leaders that are being well so they can lead well. Let's start out by really defining and talking about what is blood glucose. I know a lot of people have heard it. They've heard blood sugar levels. They know they need to be concerned about it, whether or not they have diabetes. And maybe they don't even know that. So let's talk about that a little bit, Chabnam. Yeah. So blood glucose, now just a few terms, uh, blood glucose and blood sugar are two terms that are often used interchangeably. But again, the sugar that we talk about here is not the same as table sugar. And I don't want to go down into rabbit holes and saying table sugar is this and that. But important thing to remember is when we say blood sugar and blood glucose, it means essentially the same thing. Though, you know, people who like the technical details will say they're not the same. So the important point here is blood glucose is essentially a sugar that is present in our bodies that our bodies utilize for many different things. So our bodies need a fuel for every cellular, you know, activity whether it is to make hormones, to make neurotransmitters, to make enzymes, you know, a whole bunch of stuff. And as Andrea, you and I have discussed before, our brains are one of the biggest energy hogs. So the brain is just about 2% of our body weight, but it uses up 20% of energy. Now, the fact is, uh, glucose is not the only energy source in our bodies. We also have ketones. We also have ketones that can be made from fat, and there are proteins as well. But glucose is one of the important energy sources. However, uh, one thing I want to highlight is we don't necessarily need to eat glucose or sugar or carbohydrates for our body to have the ability to make glucose. Our bodies have the ability to make glucose from other things, but there are other, uh, you know, food like um, some omega-3 fatty acids, some proteins, amino acids which come from, uh, which make proteins, which are essential, meaning our body does not have the ability to make them. Now, going back to glucose and the brain, so we are talking about brain health and everybody wants to prevent dementias like Alzheimer's. So Alzheimer's is the commonest type of dementia. And we have talked about the three foundations of brain health being blood, optimal blood glucose levels, optimal blood pressure levels, and low levels of chronic inflammation. So high blood glucose levels in people with diabetes, we know that diabetes is a condition where people have higher than normal levels of blood glucose or blood sugar, and that raises our risk for dementia. But Andrea, uh, you know, a lot of people are not aware, and this is including doctors, 
are not aware that having you know less than optimal levels and i will i will talk about what is optimal level of blood yes. glucose levels even if you are not uh, if you don't have diabetes and particularly these problems not happening at the age of 65 but in middle age if someone has less than optimal blood glucose levels in their middle ages or younger ages which has become fairly common nowadays that raises their risk for dementia years later so most people think of you know oh dementia is the problem i'll think about when i'm old i'm too young and someone in their 30s and 20s are not thinking of alzheimers right right and i think that this is very common and i want to highlight something that you said which was even doctors don't really mention less than optimal blood glucose levels in people where it's not pre-diabetes or diabetes. And so what you're sharing today is that even if you don't have those, if you're not pre-diabetic and you don't have diabetic, your blood glucose level is still really important to your health and well-being, not only now, but also in the future. And what I also want to highlight for people is that what you said so eloquently is that your midlife health decides your long-term health. And you can put practices in to keep your blood glucose levels healthy and optimal and then keep your brain functioning. So today we're going to really talk about how what the levels are and, and the numbers to know. The highlight here is that even if you're not pre-diabetic, still keep an eye on your blood glucose levels, right, Shabnam? Yes, that's absolutely right. And very often, Andrea, as you rightly mentioned, doctors will tell you, you know, keep an eye on your blood glucose levels. It's climbing, but they don't suggest what are the strategies to, you know, keep your blood glucose levels lower. And of course, we are going to talk about the strategies on uh, maintaining optimal blood glucose levels on another episode. But just by getting a yearly checkup of your, you know, annual checkup, your blood glucose, lipids and blood pressure and these, it's not enough for most people. And considering particularly, you know, the metabolic health, I could be the I could be quoting the numbers wrong. But I think sometime back we had some uh, statistics showing that 70 percent of people in the U.S. and I am sure the statistics are similar or even worse in other parts of the world are metabolically unhealthy. So that metabolic, you know, un poor health has implications for long-term health. So that is what, you know, Andrea and I are excited about sharing strategies that you can do yourself. Because see, when your blood glucose is not in the diabetes range, as your doctor would say, it is not justified to put you on a medication. <laughs> that, is, that is where lifestyle changes come in. And both you and I are excited about, you know, as Tiny Habits coach coaches, we can help change lifestyle so much better than the traditional method that I used to use before. So exactly. I'm so much more hopeful today. <laughs> and I think of it as getting ahead of the curve. If you're healthy, stay healthy. And if you're listening, you probably have an eye toward your health. And so we want to steer you in the right direction with practical, actionable tactics that you can use right away. And, you know, I have a story. My oldest was in college and they have a science, even though it's an art school, there was a science teacher and the science teacher is very young 
and was told by his doctor at a certain point, you know, keep an eye on your blood sugar, walk a little more, eat a little bit more healthily, but no really good directions. But of course, because there were no practical actionable tips, there wasn't an actual behavior for him to do. He thought I'm young and healthy. I don't have to worry about it. But come to find out he ends up actually becoming diabetic. Oh, and so now, so sad. He, yeah. So now he, he, he uses it to his, his advantage because he will show the students, he'll take his blood sugar, you know, uh, 10 times over, you know, every 10 minutes for, you know, 10 times just as so they can they can chart it. But the bigger issue is here is that he will share, you know, when your doctor tells you to keep an eye on your blood sugar, you should listen to him. Right. So it's a science project, <laughs> but also a, a message. So with that, let's talk about the body and brain and um what we need to know in terms of our, our blood glucose levels. Okay. So Alzheimer's disease is considered in, in some uh, respect as type three diabetes. So diabetes, essentially all of us know it's high blood glucose levels. When our uh, glucose, when our carbohydrate insulin metabolism does not work well. So this is sort of diabetes of the brain to you know explain it simply, because I don't want to get into the sciencey details of what exactly happens and you know what insulin does and does not do in the brain. So exactly. basically think of it as diabetes of the brain. And multiple studies recently have shown this is very interesting. Uh, something called brain glucose hypometabolism. Now, I, I don't want to, you know, I'm sorry. No, no, but one, no one needs to remember that name. Yeah. So basically what it means is uh, the brain loses its ability to use glucose as a fuel. But the, you know, the important point is the brain still has the ability to use other things like ketones as fuels. So that is important to keep in mind. It cannot use glucose as well. And this has been seen in people in the stage called MCI, mild cognitive impairment, which is basically uh, pre-dementia. So a lot of people with MCI will eventually progress to dementia. And the other interesting thing is, and we have, uh, you, not you and I, but Dr. Iyer and I have talked about brain glucose hypometabolism in women in the menopausal transition. So more women than men have Alzheimer's and earlier it was thought it was only age, but now we know. So there are imaging, brain imaging studies, which show that women going through the menopausal transition when their hormone levels are uh, haywire completely, that causes brain glucose hypometabolism as well. And a third condition, and I'm sure there are more areas which will come up now with, you know, more advanced research. Another area is women with PCOS, so polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is, again, a problem of insulin resistance, prediabetes. Young women with PCOS also have brain glucose hypometabolism. And we know that, as we talked about, you know, your health in the young age and adults, midlife, decides your long-term health. So women with PCOS are at a higher risk for heart disease, dementia. So the thing, the you know, what I want to, you know, highlight is it's not like all doom and gloom. Like you have PCOS, you are like destined to have dementia when you are in your 60s and 70s. No, it is not that. 
once we are able to manage that brain glucose hypometabolism better, we can achieve a lot of, you know, much better health. And those strategies are going to be in the next episode. But so, uh, Andrea, I know you can summarize this so well, because I feel I'm sounding really complex. It's, you know what, it's, we're here to make things practical and actionable. And so what you need to know is there's a lot of things that can affect your brain. And there's a lot of technical names for them. But the takeaway here is even if you know these and have these, and even if you have PCOS, even if you're in perimenopause or menopause and your hormones are shifting greatly, there is still hope for you. And we're going to give you actionable strategies that you can implement right away. That will be in the next episode so that you can be the driver of your own health right? No matter where you are, you can start right now to turn in the direction of, you, of better health for you and better brain health. And of course, there's this on blood glucose, one of the foundations. There's also episodes on inflammation and episodes on optimal blood pressure. So you can tweak each of those areas to get your brain and body where you need them to be. Should we talk about numbers? Because they can be very confusing and, and scary to people. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So here, when we talk about, you know, blood glucose for brain health, the most important numbers, and I'm sure all of you, if you've had an annual checkup, you've had these tests done. So most importantly is a fasting blood glucose. So you are fasted overnight, at least for 12 hours, and you get go to the lab and get your blood drawn. And it's a very simple test that is done everywhere in the world. So what is an optimal flood blood fasting blood glucose level? So here again, we, we are talking about optimal numbers, not people who, are, who don't have diabetes. So studies have shown that an optimal fasting blood glucose number is somewhere between 85 and 90 milligram per deciliter. And that is the US and the uh, US units in Canadian units, that would be, you need to divide those numbers with 18. I wish the whole world followed the same units. That'd be so nice. That would be, I think about, and I'll post those numbers in the show notes. So I think it's about 4.9 to, oh, I'm so terrible with mental maths. Four point, or how about 4.7 to five? Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> I'm going to post those numbers uh, in, because in some of us need to actually see the numbers rather than hear exactly. them. <laughs> exactly. And then they will be there for reference too. So if you know like, oh, what were those numbers again? You just hop to this episode, check the show notes. Yeah. So for example, someone with a fasting blood glucose of, uh, you know, let us say 95 milligram per deciliter will be told, oh, you don't have diabetes. But if they come to me, I will tell them, oh, you need to keep an eye on that. You need to do these, 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 these things to help you get that number lower so that you never develop diabetes. Right. And the next important number is post-meal blood glucose. Now, sometimes what happens, Andrea, it is kind of, you know, it's an annoyance to do the post-meal because fasting, you go once to the lab in the fasted state in the morning and you give your blood and you're good. But post-meal, what happens is you can't do other blood tests at that time. So you need to eat your food, then time your visit to the lab, or depending if the you know phlebotomist is coming home, you need to tell the phlebotomist, this is the time when I had my food. So you right. need to come and draw my blood in two hours time. 
So for my patients, I very often I find that they are not able to do the post-meal blood glucose test. Again, uh, you know, there's a lot of controversy about what the numbers should be. Most uh, conventional doctors would say anything more than one, I mean, less than 140 after a meal is okay. However, we in the functional medicine world, we like to see that perhaps 130 or 140, that is again, nanogram per deciliter, milligram per deciliter, the US units, divide that by 18. Uh, so again, post-meal is not always done because it's, like I said, it's annoying to go to the lab again, time your you know visit to the, you know, you have to predict so many things, traffic and this and that. And even in the US, I don't know that that is going to be the, the case, the case yeah. where you're that you can just pop in when you want. So it's it, <laughs> exactly. it impossible to do. <laughs> the next number, which is much more commoner, is something called hemoglobin A1C or HbA1C. So HbA1C is a approximation of the last three months average blood glucose levels. And HbA1c measures a second thing, which is called glycation. So glycation is basically a process in the body of, to put it very, you know, plain, in plain language, is rusting of your cells. So obviously, you don't want your hemoglobin A1c levels to be very high because you don't want your cells to rust. Yes. <laughs> you know, in my personal, it's not just my personal opinion. There's a lot of data showing it. Hemoglobin A1c is not the best measure of blood glucose because, as you know, one of my friends says, that is just telling me about averages. I don't want to know the average. I want to know the, the real one, the optimal one. So one is, you know, how may average doesn't tell us everything. And I will share one particular slide. This was in one of the papers where, you know, sometimes a picture is so much worth than words. It shows what a hemoglobin A1c of, let us say, 6% can mean so many different things. It can mean that your blood glucose goes very high at some point in the, in, in the three months, and at other times it is low, versus it can even be someone whose blood glucose levels are very, very stable throughout the three months. The two people have completely different risk for brain uh, decline for cognitive decline. <clears throat> so at the same level of hemoglobin A1c, two people may be quite different. And for some uh, conditions like having iron deficiency anemia, vitamin B12 deficiencies, which are quite common in people, particularly those who are vegetarians or vegans and don't supplement, Iron deficiency is so common, Andrea, it is like, I think last time I checked the statistics, it was like some 25% of people have iron deficiency, and they may not know it because they haven't done the right tests. So people with iron deficiency, with B12 deficiencies, and certain ethnicities like South Asian uh, people, for them, hemoglobin A1c is not very accurate. But despite knowing these problems, still all over the world, you know, anyone whose diabetes is being managed, doctors are still following the hemoglobin A1C. And it's very common. Even if you if you listen, I don't watch a lot of shows with ads, but there's a lot of pharmaceutical ads that talk about the A1C levels. 
And it makes it appear as if this is the gold standard of tracking. And so what I'm hearing you saying, and for our listeners, a highlight for you is that the A1C is not necessarily the gold standard for tracking your blood glucose level, that you could have you could have a very stable A1C level and, and have it be out of range, or you could have just one or two spikes that cause the overall average to be out of range. And those are two, you would be treated two different ways if you could actually see what was really going on. Yeah, but when we look at glycation, so not blood glucose, but we're looking at glycation levels, a hemoglobin A1C of five is considered kind of optimal. So yes, hemoglobin A1C levels are important for your glycation point of view, but not so much from your blood glucose levels because you know sometimes it's easy to, oh, my hemoglobin A1C is fine, so I should be okay. You may not be okay. So herein comes the, you know, and, and again, it's nothing, there's nothing wrong because it's very easy to do the hemoglobin A1C. You don't have to be, you know, post-meal fasted, none of that. It's a, just a right. single and point it's, test. It's not, and it's not, we're not saying don't get your, don't get that information. Yeah. yeah. Our, the whole part, what we're really doing is informing you because you who are listening to us want a deeper level of understanding. So once they have their A1C, uh, and we now they understand it because you've clarified so eloquently. Tell us what what some better a better way to understand your the, your blood glucose. Okay, the one that I really love is called continuous glucose monitoring or CGM. So CGM, you essentially wear a device. This is a fairly painless thing. It's got a tiny needle, and you wear it like uh, on your arm. And there is one that you wear on your abdomen. So all over the world, there are different devices available. Basically, the three, as far as I know, that are available in the in the market right now, the US actually has all of them. In Canada, we don't have all. So there is one called Abbott Libre, and Libre has different types. There is one Libre 2, and there is another one called Dexcom. I think Dexcom 7 is the latest one. And in the U.S., Andrea, you're lucky you're in the U.S. <laughs> there choice, is one, land of choice. Yeah, there is one called Eversense, which has one sensor can last for six months. And I would so love to have that for my patients here. Libre right, so, right. is available, as far as I know, in multiple, multiple countries. And uh, But uh, the Dexcom is not available everywhere. Eversense is not available everywhere. Lot of companies are coming up now with multiple devices which are non-invasive, but obviously they have to be clinically validated. So, what does the CGM do? Now you know that you know CGM. You can measure your blood glucose with the finger sticks. You might might have seen someone you, who has diabetes, but puncturing your finger multiple times with that lance is not a pleasant thing. And I don't know. I mean, a lot of women during Pregnancy diabetes, they would do a lot of more difficult stuff, but regularly, and I myself don't like doing that. No, nobody likes doing it. I can't no. think of anybody so who likes doing it. Yeah, you won't be puncturing your finger like 15, 20 times in a day. So what the CGM does is, and different devices measure at different intervals, 
it is continuously measuring your blood glucose levels in the background without you having to you know do a nail a finger stick or anything so though that's the biggest benefit that you don't have to keep doing something all you have to do is scan the device which is usually at, uh, you know linked to an app and scanning is very simple so just take your phone next to the device and it scans so bottom line is instead of getting like one measure or maximum maybe five measures in a day using a finger stick or a fasting blood glucose in the lab once in six months you are getting sort of a video versus getting a screenshot that is that is the easiest way That's I a find great it. example it's a great example you're getting a video instead of a screenshot yeah so a video is going to tell you a whole lot more and what is most interesting and andrea i have seen cgm being you know it, it is a major tool of behavior modification because what i find in my patients is and these are patients like i i always keep saying this i want to put a cgm on every person on earth whether they have diabetes or not we you know we know we will know their risks by just two weeks of their blood glucose data wow and, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and I, I have decided from now on, I'm going to do that once a year for myself. So what happens with the CGM is you can check your blood glucose levels before eating a certain food, one hour after eating the food or even 15 minutes, like there is no time limit, you can keep and most of my patients keep checking about 15, 20 times, they keep scanning the devices, because that information is so revealing. So what does it reveal? Number one is it will reveal, you know, your personalized blood glucose response. So very often, Andrea, I'm asked, you know, I have, you know, I've been told I'm pre-diabetic. Do you think I should eat blah, blah, blah food? You know, you name it, whatever it is, black rice or red rice or whatever. And I always tell them, I have no way of knowing until you know your blood glucose levels in before the food. Uh, 20 minutes, half an hour, one hour after the food, two hours after the food, you know, and you can track that so beautifully. And so many of my patients have found that so revealing. It's like, oh, I didn't know this one raised my blood glucose level so high and I am not going to eat that again. So that is I have found that, you know, it, it changes behavior in a very big way. And uh, whether it happens over the long term, yes, time will tell us. That's why I recommend that doing a, a two-week CGM once a year is a very good health checkup. So then the CGM also gives us additional information. There are some things called glycemic variability. That means how far your blood glucose levels go are high and low. And uh, in the, I'm not talking about people with diabetes because that's a very different, uh, and again, this is not medical advice. But for longevity, you are a doctor, but you're not, we're not, you're not their doctor. You're not the listener's doctor, but you are a doctor. Yeah, and I might be the listener's doctor, but this is not a patient consultation. Exactly. And, and really the important thing is we're giving you some, some really healthy parameters here so that you can ask the right questions and then you can get the feedback and it, and you can always reach out to Dr. Shabnam for a personal consultation. Yeah, so I just want to mention this, uh, the CGM range we look at because once people people get a device, it comes with a set range between a fasting of 
70 and a upper limit of 180 milligram per deciliter. That's the American units. For Canadian units, it would come as um, it would come with uh, and the lower limit is 3.9 and the upper would be, oh, I have to do the maths now. <laughs> so 180 would be uh, divided by 18 is 10. <laughs> 10, yeah, <laughs> simple. <laughs> no, I'm so confused by the math, we can't even do simple math. I know. Okay. So we, we know the simple math, it's just what we're thinking of it as complicated. <laughs> And first and foremost, Andrea, I told myself, why didn't I have these numbers <laughs> on you know my notes? We're, we're human here. Basically, yeah. we're human. We're showing okay. our humanity. So I will repeat. The range that we are looking in terms of prevention of dementia is 3.9 to 10. Uh, sorry, to 7.3. Sorry, not 10. So normally it would be 3.9 to 10. It is not 10. It should be lower than 10. And if you're looking at the American units, it is 72. And here again, uh, those who really want to be very more, you know, much more diligent about their blood glucose, they consider it as 130. But 140 is also acceptable, but depends on, you know, the context of rest of your life. Your blood pressure is normal. You don't sit continuously. You sleep well. So it's very hard to give hard numbers when we are talking about optimal health, prevention of dementia, longevity, because everything is in context versus someone who has diabetes. These numbers could be very different. Again, like I said, you know, it's you are on medications, your parameters are not the same as someone who is not on medication and all those things. Exactly. So, the other one is, of course, CGM, I can keep talking until kingdom come. Another number that we, another test, because many, very often you'll find people say that, oh, does your doctor test your insulin levels? So yes, testing fasting insulin levels are important. And I won't go into the details of that, but sometimes fasting insulin levels may be normal, but you are still not metabolically healthy. And there are some other tests where you test your insulin and glucose after a glucose meal. That's a three to four hour long test. And most people, I have never had it done for my patients because three to four hours sitting at the lab getting these tests done. Uh, so I'm not going into that. But yes, knowing your insulin levels, if your fasting insulin is very high, that definitely needs to be addressed. And sometimes in people who are metabolically unhealthy, Fasting, high fasting insulin levels may have already happened when you were a child. By the time you're an adult or, you know, in middle age, fasting insulin levels are no longer high, but your pancreas is still not functioning well. So I just want to end it there because fasting insulin, Andrea, I can again talk until. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And, and that, that's, these are the type of things where we want to give you a little bit more information than, than many people would, but then for your personal information, you want to talk to your healthcare, licensed healthcare professional, or you can reach out to Dr. Shabna. So the big takeaways here are the continuous glucose moderate monitoring is going to give you really the best information about your blood glucose levels, and it will give you feedback on how specific foods are affecting your specific body, because everybody's body is unique. And even though there's a lot of information out there about like, oh, don't eat white rice or don't eat 
uh, don't drink juice, have the fruit. And you're, you know, they show, maybe they even show pictures of how high the blood glucose level goes up from those things. Well, that's not your blood glucose level. And the only way you'll know that, and you'll know which foods are affecting you is for this continuous glucose monitoring. And then you can also track how you're feeling around those times so that you will know what foods actually give you energy and uh, optimism and which foods are maybe taking you down a little bit more. So with that, we will do a deep dive on the how to achieve optimal blood glucose levels in another episode. But for now, we thank you for listening. Please like, please rate, please share, and please subscribe. You can find all the podcasts at Dr. Carr MD. That's D-R-K-A-R-M-D.com slash podcast. And you can catch another episode here soon. Cheers, everyone. Bye.